following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. What kinds of things impress you? Maybe there's something or someone in your realm of expertise that you're just kind of in awe of. Or maybe it's a celebrity, a musical artist, a professional athlete, a business person. As human beings, we are wired for this. We're wired to be impressed. Surely this is one of the reasons we spend so much time, too much time, on the internet, whether YouTube or social media or some other site, because there we're inundated, not with just things that inform us or entertain us, but things that wow us, things that defy our imagination. We in the modern world are not known uh, for our great attention spans, of course, and that's because various spectacles are constantly clamoring for our attention. They're constantly clamoring to stop us in our tracks, to wow us. There are all kinds of things that impress us on a daily basis, but in our passage this morning, we get to see what impresses and wows Jesus. What on earth can possibly wow the Son of God? If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. It's Tuesday in the final week of Jesus's life. He's in the temple courts in Jerusalem, and after several rounds in the ring with him, the religious leaders have finally given up. And not just because Jesus is skillful, which he is, but also because they are stubborn. They're stubborn over and over and over again. They've proven themselves unpersuadable. But before Jesus lets these temple leaders slink off, he has a few things to say. Here's what I think is the main idea of our passage this morning, the main idea of our passage and therefore the main idea of this message. If you want to impress God, don't live to impress man. I think it's that simple. There's obviously more to say, but there is not less to say than this. If you want to impress God, don't live to impress man. 
This scene here at the end of chapter 12 features several stark contrasts, which we're going to look at together this morning. And we're going to think about them in terms of five marks of false religion, five marks of false religion against the backdrop of what truly pleases God. So the five points are these five marks of false religion arising from this story. False religion is showy. Number two, false religion is selfish. Number three, it's superficial. Four, it's stingy. And five, it's short-lived. False religion is showy, selfish, superficial, stingy, and short-lived. First, false religion is showy. Look there at verse 38. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show, for a show, make lengthy prayers. These are withering words withering words. Jesus is thundering at the teachers of the law. And I say at them because if you notice, he's no longer directly engaging with them. He's not talking to them. He's sounding a warning about them. Watch out. It's the only command in the whole passage. He says it to the disciples. He says it to the crowds. And he looks down through the tunnels of time and he's saying it to us this morning. Watch out. And what should we be watching out for? Answer, those for whom religion has become a big, elaborate show. These teachers of the law, Jesus is saying, they, he is saying, I got to give them credit. They have their appearances down. When it comes to religiosity, they look the part, hence the flowing robes. They speak the part, hence the lengthy prayers. They even act the part. That's why they're so revered by the people. It's not like the people in Israel at the time were looking at these teachers of the law and and thinking, oh, hypocrites. No, they were like, oh, heroes. These are our people. These are our best people. These kinds of spiritual leaders made the Israelites starstruck. No wonder they were greeted with fanfare in the marketplace and VIP seating wherever they went, whether in religious circles, that's why he mentions synagogues, or even in social circles, that's why he mentions these banquets. And Jesus looks at the people and he makes eye contact with us and he says, don't be duped. Don't be duped. They are play-acting. These are super spiritual showmen. Contrast this, then, with the widow. Verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. 
Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Everybody noticed the teachers of the law. We have no indication anybody noticed this widow, except for Jesus. And among other things, that's because she was there for a different reason. She was there to worship and to give, not to be seen. This passage confronts us directly with the question, are you content? Are you, in your heart of hearts, content to be only noticed by the Son of God? Or, as you're moving about in your social circles, maybe especially your spiritual circles, when you meet up with people, when you go to home group, when you come to church, are you angling to be acknowledged? My mom used to tell me there are basically two kinds of people in the world that enter a room. One kind steps into a room and thinks to themselves, here I am. The other kind steps into a room and thinks, there you are. Brothers and sisters, one sign that you're growing in spiritual maturity is that you're the latter type of person. You're not parading yourself before others to be noticed. You're simply giving yourself quietly in service. As we've said before, you're, you're racing to the back of the line, which is the place where we discover. If you've ever done that, if you have experience doing that, you know that counterintuitively, counterculturally, that is the place where you discover unexpected joys, some of the most precious joys. I mean, this church is filled with examples of saints who embody this. Joe, back there, and his team with facilities. Marty and his team with safety and security. Laura and her team with children's ministry. Paula and her team with hospitality. Carol, baking the communion bread every single month. Jen, picking up the coffee every Sunday, bringing it here, setting it out. No fanfare. I could go on and on and on with ways I see dozens of you stooping down to serve and shining in the process. Beloved, God never misses any good thing you do. He never misses any good thing. And in due time, the Bible promises you will reap, you will be rewarded if you did it for him and for us, not for you. As one old pastor reflected, quote, I used to think God's gifts were on shelves one above the other, and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the more easily we should reach them. I find now that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath the other, and that it isn't a, it isn't a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower, and that we have to go down, always down, to get his best ones, his best gifts in Christian service. The branches that bear the most fruit hang the lowest. True religion embraces obscurity, friends. It doesn't even merely tolerate obscurity. True religion embraces 
obscurity. It stoops low and sacrifices quietly to serve. False religion is just a show. Number two, false religion is selfish. These teachers of the law weren't just happening to garner attention and respect. After all, that's not inherently wrong to get attention and respect. The problem is they were seeking it, clamoring for it. When Jesus says they like to be greeted with respect and seated with honor, it's a word. That word there for like is a word for intense desire. Their actions are following their hearts and their hearts are concerned above all with themselves. They're not out there looking for others to deflect attention to, to give up their seats for. No, they're too much a big deal for that. In fact, they're so much of a big deal that even the most vulnerable in society exists for them. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses. We don't know exactly what this means. It could mean that they were opportunistic. They were convincing aging widows upon death to leave their houses to them. But whatever the historical context, the point is plain. They're taking advantage. They're exploiting the weakest and the most vulnerable in society. The word devour there is a strong word, even a satanic word. It's used, for example, in the parable of the four soils when the bird who represents the evil one swoops down and does what to the seed of the gospel? Devours it. Or in Revelation 12, an underrated Christmas text, there's like a one or two verse flashback to the Christmas story. And it says that Satan is, Satan is described as a dragon waiting to devour the promised child. The teachers of the law, we've got to understand here, they, they were not just kind of generally good-hearted men with some personality quirks, with some minor flaws. No, they are demonic in their willingness to exploit the vulnerable. And the reason is because they're selfish they're not thinking of the vulnerable. They're not thinking of others. They're only thinking of themselves. No wonder Jesus contrasts their treatment of widows with an actual widow. They're focused on themselves. She's focused on God. They're out to take, to devour. She's come to the temple today to give. That's why Jesus says in verse 44, the, the rich people all gave out of their wealth, but the widow put in everything, all she had to li live on. Literally, that phrase means she put in everything, even her own life. She put her own life into the temple treasury, her security, her reputation, her livelihood, her future. She put in her very self. Jonathan Lehman, who preached here a couple weeks ago, makes a helpful distinction between giving of yourself and giving yourself. When we just give of ourselves, we're, we're giving something of what we already possess. We're, we're, we're giving something of what we will continue to possess. We're giving some of our wisdom, some of our joy, maybe some of our strengths. 
But of course, when we do this, we're, we're, we're not really losing anything, or at least losing much. In fact, we may get praise for sharing our wisdom, sharing our time, sharing our service, sharing our strength. In fact, Paul says it's possible to give away everything you have, your possessions, even your body to the flames as a martyr, and to lack love and still be nothing. But as, as Lehman points out, when we give not just of ourselves, but when we actually give ourselves to someone, we're not just dispensing of something we have, we are actually giving what we are. Here's how he puts it, quote, I identify myself with yourself. I start giving, to, I start giving attention to your very name and reputation because I view them as united to my own. Any glory I might have becomes yours, and all the glory you have is the glory I most enjoy. One of the lessons of this story in Mark 12 is that it's dangerously easy. Oh, it is dangerously easy, friends, to leverage religious activity for personal gain. The teachers of the law craved the best seats in the synagogue. We're not a synagogue, but we are a church. And there are positions here of influence, positions at RCBC of honor that some of you may want. Just take the office of elder as one example. It's completely legitimate to desire that office. In fact, I hope most of the men in this church aspire to one day be lay elders, whether in this church or elsewhere. 1 Timothy 3.1, whoever aspires to be an overseer, an elder, desires a noble task. It's a good thing, but this passage should make you examine your motives. Do you want to know, you want a little look under the hood and know what Josh, Sebastian, Andy, and I are looking for in future elders? Men who put the holiness of other Christians before their own interests. Men who put the welfare and the well-being and the maturity of the whole church before their own interests. Men who aren't angling for influence, but who simply go about life in the church being an influence, a positive, life-giving, fruit-producing example wherever they go. Men don't prove to be elders by wowing us with public gifts up front. Men prove to be elders by showing up quietly and consistently to their nursery shift. Men prove to be elders by taking spiritual initiative in others' lives. Men prove to be elders by using their lunch breaks to meet up with other members to do spiritual good to them, to disciple them. Men prove to be elders by shepherding their wife so that she is spiritually flourishing. Men prove to be elders by being more fluent in the language of encouragement than they're fluent in the language of cynicism. Men prove to be elders by muffling shockwaves in the congregation, not making them reverberate further. Men prove to be elders not by being on ramps onto the freeway where gossip and suspicion gain speed, but cul-de-sacs where gossip and suspicion go to die. And men prove to be elders by doing all of the above with a cheerful heart 
without needing to let anyone else know. In a word, you prove to be an elder by helping others grow spiritually, whether or not you get any credit. Just being visible in the life of the church or busy in the life of the church is no guarantee of a changed heart. True religion, which elders are meant to model, is about others and ultimately about God. False religion, though it may be occupied with good things, though it may look spiritual, though it may impress other believers, false religion is finally about self. Number three, false religion is superficial. False religion is superficial. The teachers of the law were fixated on the surface of things. We just celebrated a a birthday in our family, one of my daughters, and it occurred to me uh, because I was preparing the sermon and thinking about what it means to be superficial. And don't worry, I didn't say this at the birthday party. I'm not that kind of annoying pastor dad who takes every moment to do it. You know, this is the first time they're hearing this. Uh, But imagine if you get a birthday present and you just kind of stared at the wrapping and never bothered to open it and thanked the giver because you were so focused on, enamored with the wrapping. These Pharisees were enamored with what was only inch deep, what was only on the surface, what was sparkly and shiny and attracted a lot of attention, but wasn't really the point. They just wanted to keep up appearances, and they were effective at this, so effective at this that the crowds were fooled. Even the Pharisees themselves were fooled, and it is easy for us, too, to be fooled, to be duped by fixing our best energy and attention on what is merely external. Oh, I'm not having sex outside of marriage. I'm fine. Meanwhile, lust festers and breeds in your heart like maggots. Oh, I'm not a murderer. I'm, I'm fine. But you harbor hatred in your heart toward that person. Can't even bear to be around them. Jesus says the homicide has already happened in your heart. Well, I've never told that person what I really think. (laughs) I'm fine. But you've thought it. And you still think of yourself as morally superior to them. You have what the old Anglican pastor J.C. Ryle called a fault-finding spirit. A, he said, readiness to blame others for trifling offenses. Not a slowness, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference. A habit of passing rash and hasty judgments. A disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of others and minimize your own. Even whole churches can do this. Whole churches can define themselves by what is superficial, by what's on the surface. Churches succumb to this when they start to evaluate success based on what is visible and immediately measurable. How many are we running on Sundays? How many did we baptize this year? How many services did we start? How many programs do we have How much money did we collect? These are all fine questions, but none of them is an ultimate question. Brothers and sisters, according to the Bible, 
True success is not just the breadth of what we're doing. It's the depth of who we're becoming. Are we becoming? This passage confronts us congregationally with the question, are we becoming both as individuals and as a church more like Jesus Christ, or are we just excelling in the externals? One of the most challenging things about this story is it forces us also to ask, how's our value system? Is our value system, are the ways of ranking things similar to the same as our saviors? Are we impressed by what Jesus is impressed with? And are we unimpressed with what he's unimpressed with? Are we more taken by, enchanted by, enamored by celebrities or fellow Christians who may seem ignorable, ignorable from the outside, but who house within them the third person of the eternal trinity? And as we reflect on this passage, we have to ask which person in the story would have a better shot at being a hero among us at RCBC today? A modern-day version of the Bible expert teachers of the law? Or a modern-day version of this widow? Beloved, it is so much easier. It is so much easier to look the part to look righteous than to be righteous. And if we're honest, sometimes it's not just easier, it's preferred. We actually would rather appear godly, be regarded as godly, be revered as godly than actually be godly. And this can show up in different areas of church life, can it? Maybe, maybe you want to be seen as the Bible teacher, the wisdom dispenser, the discipling guy, the parenting expert, the homeschooling mom, the hospitable family. And those are fine things, but the problem is you're tempted to want to be known for your thing more than to actually be that thing. Oh, friends, pride can show up in the most insidious of ways. Pride slithers in like the ancient snake in Genesis chapter 3, which means that the most dangerous Pharisee you know, the most dangerous attention-seeking Pharisee you know is the one in your own heart. I'll just give you a small, really silly example from Friday as I was writing this sermon. I was taking a bit of a mental break, uh, scrolling through Twitter, which, yes, I refuse to call X, <laughs> and I came across a tweet from a friend that simply said, I just finished my sixth Stephen King book. I really liked this one, and there was a picture of the novel 112263, and I immediately replied to my friend, which is your favorite? That's what I said which is your favorite, because he said it was his sixth one, and I'm always looking for recommendations. But immediately after hitting, sin, hitting send, I thought, maybe I should delete that and redraft it. Maybe instead I should say, 
I loved that book too. Which is your favorite? Maybe I should add that first sentence. Because that would still accomplish my main goal of getting recommendations, but it would also do double duty in accomplishing another goal. You see, the novel he tweeted about is like 870 pages. And in that moment on Friday, while writing this sermon, I didn't want to miss an opportunity to make sure people knew, make sure strangers, by the way, knew that I'm no novice when it comes to Stephen King novels. That I, I read very long books, no big deal. I'm not exaggerating when I say, no exaggeration, when I say that my thumb was hovering over the delete button when I thought, you teacher of the law. You don't just want to be impressive with spiritual things. You want to be impressive with the most trivial things. Why do strangers need to know you read that novel? Why are you so insecure, so needy, so shallow? Friends, false religion that tempts us, that tempts us all, is hyper-focused on the external, on the wrapping paper, on the superficial. Number four, false religion is stingy. False religion is stingy. Remember, it's Passover week, which means the temple courts are bustling with Jews who have come on pilgrimage from all parts of the Roman Empire. So it's teeming with people. There's commotion everywhere. So you can imagine that there are, this week of all weeks of the year, some massive gifts being dumped into the temple treasury. Some families have been saving up for the whole year to finally donate right here at Ground Zero in the house of God. Look again at verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. If Bible verses had sounds attached to them, this one would be so loud you'd turn down the volume. This is a noisy scene. Handfuls of coins, sacks of coins, bags of coins are being dumped, poured into the temple coffers. And it's against this backdrop, against this pandemonium, this loud, clanking background noise that we read verse 42. And this is a verse for which we need to turn up the volume. It's so quiet. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. She didn't make a scene at all because she didn't even make a sound. These copper coins were the smallest currency in circulation. She's so destitute that she's giving her last two pennies. In fact, I, I think that's why there are two. It's a way of showing she's not even holding one back for herself. Whereas the teachers of the law are loudly carting in bags of money, this woman holds everything she has in two fingers. And yet Jesus dares to say she poured in more than all the others. They gave out of their wealth. That is out of their margin. But she gives out of her heart, which is why she puts in everything, even her earthly security. 
What earthly security are you tempted to withhold, to cling to, instead of clinging to God? It could be your family, your home, your job, your reputation, or of course your money. What is it that has a hold on your heart? See, giving sacrificially, which isn't limited to finances, but it's not less than finances, giving sacrificially doesn't just demonstrate something about you. You realize, don't you, that giving sacrificially also does something to you. It shapes you. It forms you into a different kind of person. Because when you give something away, such as money, it's a declaration of independence from that thing. And what that does in that moment that you, you declare independence of that thing you're giving up, in that moment, your heart is being liberated. So instead of money being this aspiration, this status symbol, this source of security and identity, money is freed in your life to just be money. Of course you can give it away. It's not your God. It's just your money. You're no longer dependent on it for your ultimate security. Look, God doesn't need our money. He owns, the Bible says, the cattle on a thousand hills. The reason he wants us to give sacrificially is not because he needs it. It's because he loves us. He loves us. Now, how is, how is that the case? Well, he wants us to give our money so that we can be liberated from the chokehold of it. He wants us to give our money not to get the money out of our wallets, but to get the idol out of our hearts. And as members of this church, we've made a promise to one another, as I prayed about earlier, we've promised in our covenant to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the ministry of the church, to the needs of our neighbors, and to the spread of the gospel from the heart of Virginia to the ends of of the earth. By God's grace, we have a very generous church, and I want to say to many of you, nothing more than keep it up. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in giving sacrificially. That is in a way that actually affects your life, in a way that ensures it's not just coming out of your margin, safely out of your margin, but is coming out of your heart. It's forcing you to trust God. One of the obvious lessons of this story is that God is far more impressed by sacrifice than by amounts. He's far more impressed by sacrifice than by amounts. If you don't have much to give, there's a Bible verse that should encourage you. 2 Corinthians 8.12 For if the willingness is there, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Again, the key is that we're giving in faith. That we're giving in faith to help others and honor God. Not to be seen or commended or applauded for what we've done. True religion is sacrificial. False religion is stingy. Fifth and finally, false religion is short-lived. Short-lived. 
we dare not miss the last thing Jesus says. What does he want the crowds to leave? Remember, this is his last address to the crowds in the whole gospel according to Mark. What's the last thing he says in his last address that he wants the crowds to leave with ringing in their ears? End of verse 40. These men, these teachers of the law will be punished most severely. Just as your Bible talks about varying degrees of reward in heaven, this is not the sermon to think about that, but we, we, you may be thinking of verses where you see that kind of thing. There are varying degrees of reward, of joy, even in heaven. So your Bible talks about varying degrees of punishment in hell. It's common to not assume this. For many years of my Christian life, I, I don't think I, I realized this because it's common to think all sins are exactly the same in God's eyes. But that's not actually the case. It's true that even the smallest sin is big enough to make you guilty before a holy God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If God's commands are like links in a chain, how many links do you need to break in order for the chain to be broken? <laughs> just one. And yet, friends, and yet, we shouldn't take a complex, textured, biblical reality, and just flatten it out. Not all sin is the same. I'll just give you a, a sampling. You don't need to write these down, just listen. Jeremiah 16, you have behaved more wickedly than your ancestors. Ezekiel 23, she was more depraved than her sister. Numbers 15, if someone sins unintentionally, that person must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. But anyone who sins defiantly blasphemes the Lord and must be cut off from the people of Israel. And because not all sins are equally heinous, because not all sins are equally heinous, not all judgment is equally horrific. In Matthew 10, Jesus warns of towns that reject his disciples, his messengers. And he says, truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than it will be for that town. Or in Luke 12, he concludes a parable about a faithful servant and a wicked servant with these bracing words. The servant who knows the master's will and doesn't get ready or doesn't do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who doesn't know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Or in John 19, Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. He says, you'd have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. He's not saying you're innocent, Pilate. He's not saying, ah, you're good with God. Don't worry about it. But there are different degrees of sin and therefore different degrees of punishment. 
And that's what Jesus is teaching in Mark 12:40. These teachers of the law, these showmen will receive greater condemnation. Friends, the doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not easy. It is not easy. If I meet a Christian who's just blasé, kind of flippant about it, then I'm pretty sure that they haven't actually thought about it. The doctrine of eternal, unending punishment in hell is not easy, but it is just. And you can be sure, you don't have to fear that God will ever overpunish anyone. No one outside of Christ will finally escape his justice, and yet he doesn't dole it out arbitrarily. There are degrees of punishment because not all sin is created equal. And God, in infinite wisdom and goodness, will make sure that every unbeliever's condemnation will accord fairly with their knowledge and deeds. And we can find a measure of comfort, even if this runs the risk of raising more questions than it answers. Even if this doesn't completely satisfy us on an emotional level, we can derive comfort and peace from the fact that the judge of all the earth will do right. Friend, if you are here this morning and are still outside of Christ, if you have yet to relinquish control of your life to him, to turn away from spiritual showmanship, or from stubborn pride, and to put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died and rose for spiritual failures, then you, this morning, can be welcomed into and placed within the family of God, the safety of the family of God. Charles Spurgeon once said that the devil can make men dance on the brink of hell as if they were on the brink of heaven. He's that powerful. But Jesus is more powerful. He can take people, even in this room, even this morning, from the brink of hell and bring them into the promise of the glories of heaven to pleasures forevermore. Well, as we thought about at the very beginning, there are all kinds of things that capture our attention on a daily basis, that impress us, that wow us. But this story reveals what captures the attention of the Son of God. Did you notice that immediately after spotting the widow, verse 43 says, Jesus summoned his disciples? It's an impromptu meeting. Verse 43, as my friend Sam Amadi points out, the word here for summons or calls is not common in Mark. It's used only a few other times. Only a few other times. Chapter 3, when he calls the disciples to himself on the mountain and makes them apostles. Chapter 6, when he sends them out in pairs to cast out demons. Chapter 8, when he predicts his death and resurrection. Chapter 10, when he gives them, he reveals to them for the first time in the whole gospel the meaning of his death as a ransom for many. And here, in chapter 12, this ordinary, obscure, quiet widow. Authority for apostolic ministry, demon exorcisms, death and resurrection for sin, and this widow, that's what Jesus gets the disciples together for. Oh, and it's the last 
thing he'll say in front of the crowd. So the greatest public ministry of all time is climaxing with this. The last thing that Jesus in the greatest public ministry of all time is going to say is a lesson about a widow and her pennies because she embodies everything that his disciples are meant to be. And she's not just an inverse to the teachers of the law, as we've seen. She's not just a foil to false religion. She's also a preview, a preview of what's going to happen in a mere 72 hours. Jesus tells us that she gave her everything, her very self, into the hands of God. And that's precisely what he's going to do on the cross, just on a cosmic scale. He's not merely going to tithe his blood. He's going to spill it all. He's going to give his very life. And because he did this, because he gave his all for us, we can give ourselves generously and sacrificially and quietly for others. Christianity doesn't just have to be a show. Let's pray. Father, your word tells us that your son, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. We praise you, Jesus, for plunging yourself into our spiritual bankruptcy so that we could experience everlasting joy with you. We pray you would guard us this morning from being showy, selfish, superficial, and stingy. And we pray that you would help us to remember that false religion is short-lived because the judge of all the earth will do right. Make us more like this widow and more like your son, we pray in his beautiful name. Amen.